This is The Rounds Table. Welcome back, Rounds Table listeners. Uh, John and I are back, and this week we are going to be talking mainly about a drug called sumaglutide. And I guess, John, what did we decide the theme of this week's episode, this month's episode was? I was wondering if maybe we would call it like metabolic syndrome. Uh, maybe this week is just semaglutide. Is it a wonder drug or not? Yeah, yeah. Fair, fair. I like that. And we'll say up front that, you know, we're not receiving any money from the manufacturers of semaglutide, but we're going to talk a lot about it over the next 20 minutes or so. So, John, why don't you uh, take it away? What episode or what article, pardon me, are you talking about? So first, we're going to be talking about a placebo-controlled trial of subcutaneous semaglutide in non-alcoholic steatohepatitis. This was published in the New England Journal of Medicine in March of this year, uh, and it was by Newsom et al. Cool. And what was their research question? Well, the question was, does semaglutide help patients with NASH? Okay. And why is this important? So, as we know, NASH is becoming a more and more common cause of severe liver disease and can certainly progress to cirrhosis and all of its complications. Insulin resistance is thought to be the driver, which kind of leads to the hepatic lipid accumulation, leading to injury and inflammation. You know, there's really no specific treatments that have great evidence for NASH outside of recommending lifestyle optimization and trying to get underlying disease comorbidities under control. For one of the cousin drugs, liraglutide, it was shown to improve liver enzymes as well as histological resolution of NASH. So bring forward semaglutide. It's known to help with weight loss. It's known to be good for glycemic control in diabetics. And it's also been shown to reduce ALT and some markers of inflammation. So maybe it will help with NASH. Yeah, I'm sold. I mean, like you said, so many patients have NASH and there's like, let's be honest, really no effective treatments whatsoever. We recommend lifestyle interventions for a whole host of conditions. And I think in the case of NASH, that probably doesn't cut it. So anyway, what was the study designed for this trial? So this was a randomized control trial, double-blinded, placebo-controlled. It involved 143 sites in 16 countries. Patients were aged 18 to 75, with or without diabetes, and they all had a BMI of greater than 25. They also needed to have histological evidence of NASH, and in fact, they all had biopsies at baseline, as well as at week 72, which was the follow-up period. They did exclude people with really poorly controlled diabetes, and that was considered to be if you had an A1C of greater than 10%. They also excluded people if you had non-NASH chronic liver disease, as well as if you had excessive alcohol use. Uh, patients were randomized to varying doses of semaglutide, which is given subcutaneously, and then this was uh, versus placebo. They stratified by region, diabetes, and fibrosis stage. And so, as I mentioned, they actually did biopsies at baseline, as well as at week 72. The pathologists who interpreted the biopsies were blinded to treatment arms. Uh, there were a couple of different endpoints. So the primary endpoint was resolution of NASH, and this was defined as no more than mild inflammatory cells on that subsequent biopsy and no hepatocyte ballooning, as well as no worsening of fibrosis. There were also a number of secondary endpoints that included improvement of at least one fibrosis stage and no worsening of NASH at 72 weeks. 
They looked at a bunch of safety outcomes as well. Now, one thing is that initially they had one plan for how they were going to do the analysis, but then they say in the statistical section that the primary and secondary endpoints were eventually only performed on those with stage F2 or F3 fibrosis at baseline. This was decided after recruitment, but before unblinding. And they said that they did it to, in quotation marks, match the population considered to be by regulatory authorities, the intended target population. So just a little bit of a caveat there. Okay. Yeah. And it's interesting. I mean, I just sort of assume people have NASH. I don't think I've ever seen a patient who's like had a biopsy and had a biopsy proven unless it's like a really big diagnostic dilemma, or I guess there's other competing causes. So that's just interesting. And it's interesting that the primary outcome was biopsy findings. Like uh, I've never had a patient say to me, Hey, you know, how does my liver look? And do you have a drug that could make it look better? But anyway, what did the included patients look like in this study? So they randomized 320 patients. And of those who completed treatment, there were 285. At 13% or 43 of the patients actually didn't have information on the primary and secondary outcome. And as mentioned, they were followed to 72 weeks. So 78% of the population was white. 61% were women. 62% had diabetes. At mean age was about 55. Mean BMI was 36. And about 30% had stage 1 fibrosis. About 50% had stage 3. Uh, gotcha. And what did they find here? So among those patients with stage F2 or F3 fibrosis, they did show that there was resolution of NASH with no worsening of liver fibrosis that favored semaglutide. And specifically, if you looked at those who got semaglutide at 0.4 milligrams versus placebo, 59% of those patients had resolution of their NASH compared to 17% with placebo. And that was an odds ratio of 6.85 with confidence intervals from 2.6 to 17.6. Now, when it came to improvement of fibrosis itself with no worsening of NASH, they did not show a statistically significant difference at any dose. As well, the confidence intervals were quite wide and crossed zero, crossed one rather. Now, when it came to side effects, there were a fair number of side effects and predominantly they were GI. So nausea occurred in 42% versus 11% of patients, constipation in about 22% versus 12, vomiting in 15% versus 2, and discontinuation rates despite that, however, were reasonable. About 7% discontinued the semaglutide versus 5% in placebo. They also kind of paid attention to a signal for malignant neoplasms. There were three patients, and this was 1% of the patients that got semaglutide who did have a finding of a malignant neoplasm versus zero in the placebo group. Okay, gotcha. So they achieved their primary outcome, though, it sounds like. It sounds like among individuals with this F2 or F3 fibrosis, they showed no worsening of liver fibrosis, and that occurred way more commonly with the drug compared to placebo. Is that right? Big time. Yeah. Like they, they did show what they hoped to find. I think what they were a bit surprised about though, was that they did not show improvement in fibrosis itself. Hmm. Okay. Gotcha. Um, main limitations for this study? Well, you know, this was a fairly small trial. If you finally look at how many patients got drug versus placebo in each group, and we don't truly have long-term data. So this was up to 72 weeks. And one of the questions is that perhaps with the pathophysiology of NASH and developing fibrosis, maybe you need more time. So say the NASH itself goes away, perhaps the fibrosis will also improve, but maybe we just didn't have a long enough time window to see that effect. But of course, we also don't have information on whether or not these patients then went on to develop cirrhosis. But again, it was a small time window that we looked at, but that would have been a kind of an important thing to know as well. Like, you know, 
sure, the NASH improves, but if the fibrosis doesn't, then are these people still at risk of developing cirrhosis and all of its complications? Yeah, fair. I mean, what strikes me is just like the sort of primary outcome, like who cares? Like this is a surrogate outcome. All we're saying is that if you take this drug for, you know, a really long time, then you'll have less worsening of the liver fibrosis. But it's kind of like, I don't know, does a patient care about that? I'm not sure. This drug is also ridiculously expensive, which I'll talk about later. But anyway, what's the take home point here? Yeah, so I guess the take home point is that giving the injection helped improve people's NASH, but made no difference in their fibrosis. Okay, practice changing. Are you going to start jabbing patients with this drug? Not yet. You know, we need longer term data. There's also a boatload of GI side effects that comes along with this. And so, you know, I don't think there's a convincing evidence yet to say that for the indication of NASH to use semaglutide, I think you could consider it in the, you know, patient who does have diabetes that you're trying to kind of optimize your diabetic control. Uh, but no, not as a primary indication for NASH. I don't think we're there just yet. Yep, I would definitely agree. Okay, well, sticking with semaglutide, um, the study that I'm going to discuss is entitled once-weekly semaglutide in adults who are overweight or obese, uh, published in the New England Journal of Medicine, March 2021. This one I saw kind of blowing up over Twitter. But first, what was the research question here? Can semaglutide achieve weight loss in people who are overweight or obese? Okay, why was this important? So obesity, we know, is a massive global health challenge, particularly in North America, Europe, Australia, etc., and there's very few effective and robust pharmacologic strategies for sustained weight loss. There's lots of strategies for short-term weight loss, but long-term, not so much. Yes, there is another glutide, liraglutide, which has shown to be effective, but it's a daily injection. I don't know. I'm just not sure you're really going to be able to convince patients to do that. So what's cool about semaglutide is that it's a once-weekly injection uh, approved for people with diabetes and they're at increased cardiovascular risk. I'm a big fan of that medication in that patient population. Fun fact, semaglutide itself, this GLP-1 analog, the GLP-1 analog uh, was first identified in a type of lizard called the Gila monster. So I don't know, I think that's just kind of a cool origin story for this class of drugs. <laughs> that is a great medical jeopardy question. I hope that the uh, chief residents out there are paying attention. <laughs> yes, yes, exactly. So tell me, how did they do this study? So uh, industry-sponsored, double-blind, international randomized trial of adults with a BMI of 30 or up, or adults who had a BMI of 27 and up, and they had a coexisting condition. These individuals did not have diabetes, and randomized 2 to 1 to semaglutide once weekly uh, for 68 weeks versus placebo, and everyone got lifestyle interventions. So the inclusion criteria age 18 plus, as mentioned, BMI 30 and up or 27 and up, if you had a coexisting condition like hypertension, hyperlipidemia, excluded adults who had diabetes, pancreatitis, uh, prior surgery for weight loss, or recent use of an anti-obesity drug. And really, you know, similar to yours, it was that patients either got the drug or a matching placebo, started at low doses, and then slowly ramped up over time. Um, plus, everyone got monthly um, sort of lifestyle modifications. And more specifically, that involved monthly meetings with with a dietitian, um, targeting 500 kilocal deficit per day of energy expenditure. Um, so I guess 
more specifically, it's identifying foods that can reduce those kilocals and relative to how much energy you're expending, and then also increase physical activity with a recommendation being of 150 minutes per week of, you know, walking, etc. Primary outcome was a co-primary outcome of percent change in body weight. And the other aspect of it was weight reduction of at least 5%. Uh, and they did an intention to treat analysis. Okay, so people were randomized to get the jab or not, but everyone had actually what sounds like pretty good lifestyle coaching and optimization. Uh, what did the patients look like? So they screened uh, 2,300 patients and just under 2,000 were enrolled and randomized. And it is amazing. They enrolled and randomized all of those individuals within five months. I'm jealous of how quickly they were able to recruit. And I think what's really interesting, so again, keep in mind that it was two to one randomization. So 1,300 got semaglutide and about 650 got placebo. 94% completed the trial. 91% had the primary outcome assessed. And the patients, you know, what did they look like? Um, average age of 46, 73% women, 75% Caucasian, average weight of 225 pounds, average BMI of 38, and 40% had hyperlipidemia, similar rates of hypertension, and coronary artery disease was rare. All right. So the big news is, did it work? Yeah, it really did. So remember this one aspect of the primary outcome was the mean change in body weight. So patients who received semaglutide had about a 15% reduction in their body weight compared to about 2% with placebo. So, you know, that's a difference of 12%, which is pretty remarkable. And to put it in terms of numbers, patients who received semaglutide lost approximately 35 pounds compared to the group of placebo who lost about six pounds. So that's just remarkable. Remember, they had a co-primary outcome, which was a 5% reduction in body weight. So semaglutide arm, just under 90% achieved that, and the placebo arm, about 30%. Uh, similar to your study, side effects were mainly gastrointestinal. So 75% of patients who got semaglutide experienced GI side effects such as nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, compared to 50% of those who got placebo. And, you know, much more people discontinued the drug as a result, and specifically due to side effects, about 5%. There was also some other potential uh, side effects, including uh, cholelithiasis, as well as maybe pancreatitis. I don't know, probably not. And in case you're curious, this drug does not cause hypoglycemia. And in this study, hypoglycemia was very rare. Okay, wow, 15%. Like, in my mind, I thought that the goal is if you can get a 5% reduction in someone's body weight, then like, that is pretty impressive. So 15% is phenomenal. What are some of the limitations here? So I think one is generalizability. I just think that it's really hard to know how well are these results going to actually apply to, you know, the patients that you see, you and I see on like the GIM ward, for example. The average age here is 46, okay? And 73% were women. That's just not the typical patient population that we are looking after. So I wonder a lot about that. The other major aspect and issue here is cost. This drug is extremely expensive. So for example, in the US, guess how much one month supply of metformin costs, John, in the US? I don't know. I mean, no, I expect it to be relatively inexpensive, but in the U.S., I feel like all bets are off. I'll say, uh, how about uh, 50 bucks a month? Nope. It is about $3 a month. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. And at some pharmacies, they'll actually give it away for free just so that you will fill your other medications at, the, at this pharmacy. So in contrast, semaglutide, 
costs closer to $1,000 per month. So this is massively more expensive. And you just sort of wonder, is it worth the costs? I don't know. Maybe. Who knows? But those are my big limitations here. It's a very expensive drug. And I wonder a lot about um, external generalizability. Fair. Okay. So what do you think the take-home point is? You know, having said that about the limitations, I think this is a blockbuster, okay? And I think it has the potential to really change long-term outcomes for people who are obese, especially if those individuals are willing to give something a try and we can encourage adherence in a population who's going to adhere to the medication. I think it really could be a blockbuster. Yeah, it really sounds like it. And just remind me, these patients actually did not have diabetes, right? Like we're just talking about people with obesity in Correct. general. Wow. Correct. Okay. Yeah. They excluded those with diabetes precisely. Yeah. That's pretty amazing. Uh, is this going to change your practice? Yeah, I actually think it will. So of course, we first need to wait for Health Canada to approve this drug for this indication. But when Health Canada does this, I do think it's going to certainly change my practice. Currently, I probably do a really poor job when it comes to managing patients' obesity and beyond just sort of the diet and exercise. I just don't feel like there's many other options. And this really changes things. So, yep, I think it will change my practice. This is a big deal. Okay, great. But how about you, John? Do you think you would be as enthused? I mean, for NASH, no way. But if the patient had obesity and they had NASH? Yeah, I mean... I think it's really hard to ignore the data. You're right, though. This is a trial, and so it's nicely polished. What happens in the real world when, you know, you're seeing patients on the floor? It's it's hard to know, you're, as you already identified, how generalizable this is going to be. But if you could tell patients that they could lose up to 15% of their body weight, that's a pretty big deal. And so... I think that I will definitely uh, consider it, you know, like you said too, though, we just got to get approval, but I don't think that's going to take very long if it does cause this kind of improvement in people's weight, which is such a, a difficult thing. You just don't see other drugs do this. It's not, uh, it's not the case. Yep. Totally agree. All right, listeners. Well, this week we're just doing one article each. So I guess now it's time to uh, change gears to the good stuff. So John, uh, what's some good news? Uh, what do you have to share from uh, Calgary? Uh, well, this one's not from Calgary, but it is from Ottawa. So still Canadian content. And, you know, no one's really been able to travel anywhere because of COVID. An Ottawa couple has taken staycation to the next level, just, you know, to try to cheer themselves up as well as everyone else. They've had some pretty elaborate kind of costumes and backdrops in their living rooms as they kind of go on the trips that they weren't able to go on. So to the Big Apple in New York or uh, to Vegas, for example. So the photos are great. It looks like they're having a ton of fun and uh, check it out. I'll send a link or sorry, I will have the link on the website. Nice. Now, is this is this what inspired you to create that fancy island backdrop scene for Kimber's birthday uh, the other month or what? <laughs> no, I, I wonder if maybe I inspired them, perhaps, because <laughs> that preceded this article. This article just came out this week, but uh, maybe I'm ahead of my time. OK, fair enough. Well, I actually came across this link, uh, nothing to do with COVID and not overly recent, but it's this hilarious sketch by uh, Ryan Gosling um, on Saturday Night Live. And it's called Papyrus. And essentially, he realizes that the Avatar logo from that movie Avatar many years back was just simply 
the papyrus font in Microsoft Word. And that was it. And it's him just sort of like having a mental breakdown almost all about how they were just so lazy and all they did was write avatar, highlight it, right click, papyrus. And once you watch the skit, you'll know why it is just so funny to watch. Okay, I'm checking that out as soon as we sign off. Okay, awesome. All right, John. Well, uh, thanks so much. We'll, we'll chat again soon and stay safe in Calgary. Absolutely, Mike. Talk to you soon. The Rounds Table is hosted online at healthydebate.ca. Follow us on Twitter at Rounds Table. Special thanks to our audio editor, Emilio Garcia Flores. Also thanks to founder of The Rounds Table, Amol Verma, and Kieran Quinn, the previous director. We'd also like to give a big thanks to Seema Marwaha, the editor-in-chief at Healthy Debate, for all of the support.